my wife, you know, I, I joked that if she ever bought a, a, if there was a TV for sale that only had HGTV on it, she would buy it. She loves that kind of stuff. <laughs> so she tells me about all these like little trends. I'm like, okay, that's kind of interesting. I want to research this guy. I got, you know, prosecuted by the FBI, but go ahead and tell me about Marie Kondo or whatever this stuff is. And, you know, everything being neat and tidy. And it's like, I know with six kids in my house, nothing is tidy. <sighs> Welcome back to the Loopcast, Catholic Votes weekly rundown on all things faith, culture, and politics. And as always, it's the Loop team. It's Tom, Erica, and Josh. And this week, we really have a packed schedule. We're talking about the exoneration of Mark Hock, why the FACE Act should be abolished, school choice, and a great interview with Jeremy Tate and the classical learning test, and a shout out to, on his way to the Super Bowl, Harrison Butker, uh, who has a really cool conversion story and his great representation for the Catholic faith. And then we run into the Twilight Zone. So. Top story, this was kind of our first breaking news I'd say we've had in a while here at Catholic Vote, just something we're so focused on. It's the uh, exoneration of Mark Hock. Uh, what a whirlwind this trial was. Uh, so many people were praying for him. We actually had a lot of loopers email in talking about praying for him. And uh, the prayers were answered. Um, he was found not guilty on charges, uh, some ridiculous charges. Uh, so Erica, you were kind of following the coverage on this. What really stuck mm-hmm. out to you about uh, the trial and what ended up the decision ended up being. Yeah, sure. There are a lot of great moments in the trial. And I want to just give a quick shout out to Catholic News uh, Agency's Joe Bacouris. I hope I pronounced your name right. But he did a great job of live coverage and live tweeting the the trial and the outcome. So thanks to him. I was following his Twitter thread the whole time. And uh, what one of my favorite things to just uh, point out is that the the night before the trial even began, fifty about fifty of uh, Mark's supporters show up outside of the courthouse and they just pray their rosary outside the door of the courthouse. And I mean, I don't know how often this happens in Philadelphia, but I'm guessing this was a first <laughs> that they would actually like the night before the trial be out there. But um, as the Thomas More Society and another shout out to them for phenomenal work. As they pointed out on their Hannity interview, um, the, the DOJ really, they sent in their best guy for this. They sent in who they said was their their premier face act lawyer from D.C. to prosecute the case against Mark. And I have to say, like when I actually saw they finally released the footage of the incident where Mark um, did push the the escort. His name is Love, ironically, pushed Love. Um, and you're looking at this, this, and you're like, for this, the DOJ called, yeah, they, they shove, he shoved this escort out of the way of his son out of the way. But yeah. And he's clearly standing. Yeah. Yeah. If you see the video and I would go watch it, we'll link it, but watch the video and you see that this escort is like coming up to Mark and he is, his son's there. His son's trying to get away and the escort backs off Mark. Mark tells him to back off. Mark turns around to walk back to his son. The escort comes up behind him again and is right in Mark's face as he turns around. So like he's reacting, he's shoving him away. But anyway, you watch the video and you're like, okay, so for this, which, uh, yeah, for this, the DOJ sends their top lawyer to prosecute this guy and he's facing up to 11 years in prison for that? You're, you're, it's, it's just kind of mind boggling. I feel and like we're in the twilight zone days. already, guys. Eleven days in jail would be too much. Seriously. I mean, give me a break. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I, so, so I mean, in my days as a little, eleven minutes of community service, maybe. Yeah. I, I mean, that's about all I would. <laughs> so it's ridiculous. A way that I made money in college was I umpired little league baseball games, and I seriously have seen <laughs> dads at these games push right. each other harder than this. And they just kind of shake it off and they go get beers after the game. Like it was truly. No one calls the cops. No right? one calls the no cops. One, no one sends. No. But did you the see. Cops. Uh, wait, wait. Did, 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 did you actually see the Justice Department and the FBI show up at any of those uh, of your baseball games there? No, no guns mm-hmm. blazing. I mean, it's no sort guns. of ridiculous, but it's like, remember Morning what happened? Raids. The FBI. Yeah. They sent in like 40 to 50 people to raid this person's house. Mark's house. His mm-hmm. whole family traumatizing their kids and everything. It's like. 
And it's not like it happened the next day that this raid happened. Uh-huh. It was a full year after the event right. happened. Why did this happen? It happened because the Justice Department got orders from the Biden administration. We got to do something. They were that because mm-hmm. their pro-abortion activists were furious yeah. that Roe v. Wade was overturned, and they wanted some action. They wanted something done. And they those pro-life protesters right. that are outside our abortion clinics, they're something's got to be done about them. And mm-hmm. they wanted the book thrown at them. And the judge in this case was like. Well, this is like a yeah. your your expansive view of what the Face Act would allow is is he, you know the judges thought this is crazy. I mean, mm-hmm. he didn't use those exact words, but yeah. it was just it was obvious the judge thought this was a massive overstep by the Biden Justice Department. And again, it's just a retribution. It, it's it's pro-abortion lobbyists furious that yeah. they got Roe v. Wade overturned, and they wanted their they want hey they put Joe Biden in the, in the into the White House. They want something done about this. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, noting as well that he offered to turn himself in to right. the, the FBI, and they still <laughs> came and raided his house. So, I mean, yeah. anyone that would claim at this point that the Department of Justice is some neutral, non-political entity is clearly not paying attention, clearly not listening to the Loopcast. It's honestly shocking to me, too, how little coverage this has gotten on a national level. Like, mm-hmm. we are covering it. Uh, CNA is covering it. Catholic News Agency life sites covering it but other than this like this feels like such a yeah, monumental a decision that has well, real lasting consequences that it's not being covered as like as big of a deal as it actually is so when the republicans have this weaponization of the justice department committee and chairman jordan looks at this they need to investigate this and i'm not mm-hmm. suggesting that every you know fbi agent be fired but somebody who authorized this use of force that person should be fired. Oh. It's like, what are you going after, Manuel Noriega? Like you're sending in 40 members of the FBI to raid right. a guy's house? I mean, for shoving somebody? Yeah. It's absolutely ludicrous. The message that needs to be sent back to the FBI and the DOJ and the people who are in power in there right now is that this is this is a this cannot be how we treat the American people. This is this is unacceptable. And there there needs to be, I mean, a friend of mine, her reaction when she saw the verdict was like, great, now does he get to turn around and sue the FBI for emotional damages to his children? Right. Like you we can't just be like, oh, he won. Yay. Because this was this is not the end of the story. This is just, you know, we won the battle, but the war is far from done. Erica, you mentioned that something that really stuck out to you in the trial, speaking of yeah. like family damage, they put his 14-year-old son to get mm-hmm. cross-examined during the trial. And and yeah. I'll let you kind of spoil it, but this I mean, chilling moment. was my favorite moment of the whole trial, other than when the Planned Parenthood, the, the, the man in charge of the security for Planned Parenthood, other than when he admitted that Planned Parenthood itself has a non-engagement policy and that he had removed love from being a volunteer at the clinic because he'd violated Planned Parenthood's own policies. Wow, yeah. Other than that moment, which was pretty <laughs> sweet. So yeah. they get Mark Huck, Mark Huck Jr. up on the stand because he was the child who was present. So he was 12 years old at the time of the incident, and he was there. So they put him up as a witness. And during the cross-examination, the lawyers from the DOJ, they're going at him and they're saying things like, who prepped you for this testimony? What did they tell you to say? And the kid, just cool as a cucumber goes, they told me to tell the truth, the truth. And that was it. They're like, oh, no further questions. Yeah, no like, further how questions. awesome. This 14-year-old kid holding his rosary probably. You know, he's yeah. like, he's just like, they told me to tell the truth. That's it. And could, you, uh, could you imagine? Can you imagine 14? under that pressure? Would I have said that? Seriously. So 14 year old, you got the DC bigwigs coming into town trying to grill you, make you look stupid. And I mean, talk about the Holy Spirit intervening, seriously. Like so so how the the case was resolved, because it actually they said that the jury was in deadlock at one point. And then eventually they brought in an alternate juror at a certain point. So they had a full jury. They were kind of split. Like, I think they needed a unanimous decision. They removed one member of the jury. And then within an hour, they came to a decision. I mean, the obvious choice. He wasn't he wasn't guilty of what the face act was charging him for. And so I think this really huge victory. This is not the end, but it's important for us to talk about why does the face act exist? What is the FACE Act? And, and really, should we be pushing for it to be repealed? I mean, all we've seen it used for is weaponization against pro-lifers outside of clinics. It supposedly covers 
um, churches and places of worship, but it has not been used in that capacity almost ever. So Erica, I know you did some more research on that. What's the FACE Act to start off with? So the FACE Act is, um, it was it was a bill passed in the mid-1990s um, on behest of <clears throat> the, the abortion industry. They were concerned about pro-lifers. This was coming off of the Operation Rescue when um, pro-life protesters were going into the clinic. So the FACE Act was passed, and Josh is going to have to step in and tell me who is the one who actually pushed it through, because my mind is blanking. Josh... <laughs> Who is well, that? I mean, Clinton. This is Bill is, Clinton was big on this, right? Yeah, and 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 in in the Congress, there's a big debate about this. You know, I mean, uh, Democrats control the House and the Senate. Um, you know, when Bill Clinton started his term, mm-hmm. and there were liberal Republicans that were willing to go along with it, like uh, Minnesota's David Durenberger, who just actually passed away this week. Um, Best in but peace. anyway, yeah. So I mean, what what happened with this? Um, there was a lot of discussion on this. And of course, you can still filibuster a bill and pro-lifers were against the the bill. But one of the things that uh, some really dedicated pro-life activists made sure if you're going to pass this bill on FACE Act, and, and I think it went through in 93 or 94, uh, so early on in Clinton's term, if you're going to pass this bill, make sure that the protections would be for not just you know, because it's face, you know, it's for mm-hmm. freedom, uh, freedom of access, access to clinics and entrances. clinic entrances. Yeah. So if you're going to do it for that, it's like, well, are you also going to refuse it for the ent- uh, church entrances? And so, you know, the pro boards weren't really able to say no to that. So it got included in the bill. So we can actually, I mean, I'm completely in favor of getting rid of the bill or mm-hmm. the law and repealing it. But it is true that we can actually use the FACE Act uh, for these people who are targeting Catholic churches and saying, hey, you're, we have a right to be able to access our own churches, mm-hmm. obviously. But who's right. the, the reality? The, with the guys, no, the thing is that the, the attorneys for Mark Hawk at, over at Thomas More Society, again, major shout out to those guys, amazing mm-hmm. work. They were able to say, now listen, the FACE Act, when they were debating this in the Senate, uh, Durenberger and Kennedy and these guys, and they said, well, we don't want to include, you know, it should be for the, the, the actual people, the doctors and the f- physicians and all the support staff that work for the clinic, but it's not the escorts themselves. Mm-hmm. And Does so not apply. that's why when uh, Mark Cox attorneys went in and said, this doesn't even apply. Like this guy, love whoever, he's just some sort of volunteer escort, whether he's paid or not. He's not covered under the FACE Act anyway. Yeah. This whole case should be thrown out. Right. And so ultimately... Um, I think this whole case against Marcock was just, you know, a, a house of cards built on sand and it just collapsed. And I think that one juror, they, I mean, I, I don't, they haven't really made a lot of a point about this, but I think that juror ultimately was someone who was stuck in the mud and, and they just said, no, we need someone to look at this case objectively yep. and put the politics aside and just that would say, be my guess. the law is the law. This guy's yeah. innocent. That's my mm-hmm. guess. I don't know. But I feel like it'd be so hard uh, to find uh, in like people that are, not engaged in politics of some kind or have no opinion on pro-life or abortion oh type my gosh, matters. Yeah. Like I can't imagine the process of finding these people because it's just, it's on everyone's consciousness. These mm-hmm. days, you know? but, right. But I think to, to, to get back to the face act a little bit um, there. So it clearly did not apply in the case of Mark Hawk because it doesn't apply to escorts as Josh said, but it also is pretty clear that the face act as a whole has been utterly weaponized against pro-life activists and that, you know, last year alone, and we've talked about this before, um, and we detail it in our, in our ebook on the churches are burning. And in 2022 alone, the DOJ filed 26 FACE Act charges. None of them were to protect churches. None of them were against people who had entered churches. We have video of people disrupting masses in Chicago. None of them were punching charged. Punching people in the face. Punching yep. people, in assaulting people going into mass. None of them have been charged under the FACE Act. Right. So the fact right. that not once has it been used, um, it is not It is not applied equally. And the 
the Biden administration has been stonewalling and ignoring good faith attempts by Congress to have oversight on this. It has stonewalled requests for data and for briefings. Congress, Republicans in Congress have asked for information on these cases and what investigations have been made into the church burnings and the attacks on pregnancy centers, and they're stonewalled. They are not giving them the data. They won't give them the information. Mm -hmm. Um, So the FACE Act has clearly lived out its use if it ever had any. Um, and so in addition to, to Mark Hawk this, this week, we saw Father Fidelis Machinsky, who's um, a Franciscan friar of the renewal. He was arrested and charged with the FACE Act. He was convicted by the federal court and he will be sentenced on April 24th. He's appealing the decision, but he will be sentenced. So I, I encourage anyone listening to pray for Father Fidelis. Um, well, Mark Hawk had good news this week. Uh, father father was convicted. I would be remiss if I didn't say that, you know, it is ironic that uh, Father Fidelis is going to be sentenced on April 24, which is the feast day of St. Fidelis. So I'd like to encourage everyone so beautiful. to pray for St. Fidelis, for Father Fidelis, inter- you know, to intercede for Father Fidelis. Yeah. yeah. And we like that name because uh, Fidelis means faithful. That's Catholic Votes OG name. <laughs> that was based on you with the slang. Yeah, yeah. it's totally Gen much. Z going on. Yeah, for those it's people lit. that don't know, uh, patron saints of Catholic vote: Father Fidelis, Saint Thomas More, or sorry, Saint, Saint Fidelis, Fidelis. <laughs> Saint Thomas More, Our Lady mm-hmm. of Guadalupe. So, any yeah. anytime you guys want to help us out, you know, give us give us a shout. Mm-hmm. Pray for us too, our patrons. Well, and of course, always for you know, you say Our Lady of Guadalupe. The other title of um, Mary that we like is Our Lady of Victory because we're about the W's. Speaking of which, I just want to point out, like, we get a lot of we get a lot of feedback on the loop, you know, people saying it's all so dark and the news is so depressing. But I have to say that listening to Mark Hawk outside of the courthouse, I'm just like playing his clips on repeat. Like and he's <laughs> saying, but listen to him. He talking about the rosary, yeah. all his supporters playing the rosary. And he actually says he says. I am grateful to God that he allowed my family and me to suffer in this way for the church. He's he's saying how grateful he is. I have no doubt that Father Fidelis, who was convicted this week, is feeling the same way that, yeah, it's tough and there's a lot of suffering, but there's so much joy in in that honor that they have received to suffer this way for the unborn uh, and for the faith. And um, yeah, so yeah. anyone who's feeling a little down about the FACE Act and all that, blah, 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 like it's also... So inspiring to listen to these guys who are really um, being asked to suffer this for us, for the church. Total chills. That's like Mark the Hawk, most Catholic Ooh. hero of the year. Total That's the chills. most Catholic. Yep. That is the most Catholic statement I've ever seen outside of a courthouse after what your family went through. And then just offering that up as redemptive suffering. Like, how do you beat someone? How <laughs> could you possibly beat down someone that welcomes suffering and then yeah. offers it for the salvation of souls? Like, my takeaway, my hot take. Even had he been convicted, even had he spent the next decade in prison, Mark Huck is a free man. You cannot enslave someone who has that in their heart. So it also this week is Catholic Schools Week. And uh, speaking of Catholic Schools Week, we actually had an interview with Jeremy Tate. He is from the Classical Learning Test. It's actually an alternative to the SAT. Uh, A really cool interview, Erica. You killed it. Uh, So we're going to go into that right now. Check it out. Jeremy Tate is founder and director of the Classic Learning Test, the most rigorous, accurate, and user-friendly college entrance exam available to students today. Jeremy is also host of the Anchored Podcast. I'd encourage you to check that out, featuring discussions at the intersection of education and culture. Welcome, Jeremy. Erica, thanks so much for having me. It's great to connect. Uh, Parent of six, I'm a fellow, I'm mom of six, and we were just talking about what it's like to have older high school students. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. I am as well. Thank you. (laughs) All right. So looking ahead to our discussion, I would like you to just, if you could take a minute to familiarize our listeners with the CLT. Can you tell us a little bit about the test, why you took on this huge project, and how is it similar or different to from the SAT, ACT. Yeah, Erica, thanks so much. And, and kind of explain what the CLT is even and why it exists. And it was one of the things that, that happened with this study that came out as we realized, well, a lot of people still haven't heard of this, that there is an alternative to the SAT. It's kind of helpful to just tell the two-minute backstory for how CLT even came about. Uh, in 2014-15, 
Uh, I was running an SAT ACT prep company. Uh, I was working as a college counselor uh, at Mount Sales Academy, uh, Dominican run school uh, in Catonsville, Maryland, which is where my two of my daughters go right now. And uh, had had previously before that read my way into the Catholic Church uh, while at a very reformed uh, Calvinist seminary it was not what I was planning on doing in seminary. <laughs> and so I got into SAT prep to just you know put food on the table. We had four kids at that point. And I was very surprised getting to know the college board, not just through the PSAT and the SAT, uh, but but uh, really through AP as well. And I would describe the college board first and foremost as the most powerful, the most influential company in American education. Uh, and college board is not neutral. Uh, college board, I would describe as very ideological. Uh, I think politically they are far, far, far left of center. Uh, and I think they push a lot of ideas and they also censor a lot of ideas. AP US, AP Euro, I think they, they neglect uh, the contributions of uh, the church uh, of Western civilization itself. Uh, the National Association of Scholars did a study recently on uh, China's influence on uh, AP Chinese culture class. Uh, and it's very much whitewashing uh, the bad stuff and presenting a very rosy picture. During this time, Mount Sales realized, wow, there needs to be a competitor to the college board. And really, one of the ways that it happened was that everything we did at this, this great Catholic school to market for new students, almost all of it was connected to the college board. We were saying, this is our average SAT score, our average PSAT score, or here's how many APs we offer. And when it really, really hit the road, Erica, was when these Dominican sisters introduced uh, an intro to philosophy. And hardly any of the girls wanted to take it. And so as a, as a college counselor, I was talking to him about this. Well, why don't you want to take this class? We're talking about the big things. What is life? What is happiness? What is right. meaning? I would have jumped Yeah, that. And, and the reason <laughs> was that it was not uh, five AP points, right? It's going to hurt their GPA well, for yeah. our top students. And that right. was this wake up, like, what are we doing? Here we've got as this faithfully Catholic school is in tension with this, in many ways, aggressively secular uh, education empire. and so. The, the CLT launched by saying, hey, you know, if there was an alternative to the SAT and ACT, uh, would that solve needs for colleges? And so because I was also a college counselor, quickly called up buddies at Franciscan and Ave and Benedictine and said, hey, if there was an alternative to the SAT and ACT that better reflected a Thomas Aquinas College education, would you change your admission standards? And right away they said, absolutely. We would love something that, that reflected Amazing. Christian or TAC. So that was the beginning uh, kind of of our story. So now, I mean, the CLT has just taken off. I love going on your website every you know couple of years. I have, I have kids going through high school and just seeing as you add schools that accept the CLT as part of their admissions process. Um, and also as a mom with my own daughter, uh, when she was prepping for the CLT, and now I have another daughter doing the same. Uh, just she's reading C.S. Lewis, and she's trying. She's reading, um, you know, these greats. It's the great conversation that it's really forcing her to enter into the great conversation in order to uh, prepare for this exam. So, so thank you on a personal. Well, note. I, I love to hear uh, that feedback <laughs> as well. And and is one of the things you wanted to do is redeem all of this wasted time during prep and, yeah. instead of you know learning these silly tricks. Let's have students reading the very, very best of what has been thought and said, and that way that, that time becomes meaningful. So, so thank you. That, that mm -hmm. makes my morning, Erica, for that feedback. Oh, of course. All right. So I want to take a quick look at this. Um, uh, Houston Christian University did an analysis of your, your test scores for the CLT, um, and I'll, I'll link the whole study in the show notes. But it, it, people ask, okay, how do I prep for this college exam? Because they want to do well. Well, it might be the best idea might be to homeschool your kids, right? So homeschool students who took the CLT exam earned mean scores of roughly 78 points, uh, surpassing private school students who earned mean scores of 75 and charter school students with 73. Public school students earned mean scores of 66, marking the lowest among the cohorts that were considered. Now, Jeremy, what's a perfect score on the Perfect CLT? score is 120, and that has only happened right, once, so, and it was a homeschooler. <sighs> That's amazing. So looking at these kinds of results, and it must be fun at this point to be, to be at a place where you can actually look at these kind of long-term analyses. Um, but looking at these, what do you think it is about the homeschool students um, that give them such an advantage on this test. And to play devil's advocate a little, is the test kind of, you know, biased towards homeschool? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. You know, I, I don't think so. I, I think something really different happens when you're, when you're reading 
to, and I haven't, I haven't read much research on this, but when you're reading out of enjoyment or out of leisure, uh, I'm a big fan of Dr. Christopher Perrin over at Classical Academic Press. Yeah, and, and a lot of his out. work, he focuses on the connection. I mean, the, the, even the etymology of school comes from the Greek word for leisure and for rest. Scholae. Scholae, mm-hmm. exactly. And, and so I think homeschool students, and we're homeschooling two of our six right now, but it's a very different experience. And, and I, never, I don't want to bash schools. I don't want to bash our, our Catholic schools or even public schools. But, you know, when my, especially my nine-year-old, you know, when he's just having the freedom to read because he's just interested in when he got a chance to pick out that book, you know, and I think something special happens then. It's, it's curiosity. I, I love the stories of, of, you know, Benjamin Franklin. He was, he was eating less food to have more money for books as a 13 year old, hmm. you know, he realized he could get by right. on one meal a day to have, I'm like, how does that happen? That a mind <laughs> becomes so hungry for knowledge. Uh, and, and, uh, so I, I think it is a cultural difference more than anything else, uh, that, and just even the time that is spent, you know, my, my daughters go to mountain Hills Academy run by Dominicans, great school. Mm-hmm. But, you know, by the time they, they get up, get ready, get their school uniforms on, get out the door, it's 45 minutes each way. There's a lot of time just in transition versus my nine-year-old right. gets up, grabs his book, grabs a bowl <laughs> of cereal and he's all, he's, he's, he's at it. That's awesome. That sounds like my nine-year-old's yeah. life right now, too. Um, I think, yeah, that idea of having leisure time uh, is so important and so countercultural. So well. countercultural. That's uh, a great way to put it. So, so countercultural. And it's something I think parents, as a mom, wanting to be aware of our children, not just, um, it's you know, I think leisure can be mistaken for just boredom or letting them do their own thing or lack of discipline. But but it's not. It's that sort of structured rest into your day that that's prioritizing the life of the mind and the life of the soul. And how cool is it that we have this test that's designed to pin to find those students who have cultivated that life of the mind? Is that a fair uh, It is. And, and it's, you know, what we're doing, people ask this question a lot, you know, and it's a great question you ask. Is, is the CLT bias in favor of homeschool students or even classically educated students? Mm-hmm. I think that, that raises, well, what, what is actually on the CLT? What are students doing? You know, and, and what they're yeah. doing is, is we like to say they're reading and we're, we're testing their ability to comprehend the very best of what has been thought and said. We, we, we can talk about the math as well uh, in a moment, but that's what we're doing on the verbal mm-hmm. side, on the grammar writing side. So students are, they're reading Dante. They're reading, you know, uh, Jane Austen, they're reading Flannery O'Connor, mm-hmm. or, or even Thomas Aquinas, Augustine. The SAT and ACT hardly ever go before the early 20th century. And we're, we're going all the right. way back to, to Plato's dialogues. Uh, we've had uh, on a number of CLT iterations before. Uh, and so if there's a familiarity, if there's kind of a fluency with uh, those sorts of texts, those students are going to do uh, a, a lot better. And I think that's what we've seen in the results. And it, it's kind of amazing now, seven years, we launched uh, in December of 2015. We just had our seven-year birthday. Uh, that CLT mm, now is, is more and more. We just see it referenced in academic journals or various places as um, as kind of a, a resource. And, and one other thing I'd say with this, you know, when I was growing up, I have very clear memories of them teaching us that the metric system was going to replace, you know, inches and centimeters. I remember that very yeah, well. Yeah, right? exactly. And it never it never actually happened, but they made sure that we knew it. And uh but I we were I was always waiting for this switch to happen and it never it never <laughs> really happened. And but I, I would describe that, that idea is exactly what we're trying to do with CLT. Because a lot of folks are still measuring academic success with these measuring sticks of the SAT, the PSAT, the ACT. And our argument is mm-hmm. no, the te- the the measuring stick itself is deeply flawed and problematic, uh, not just um, as, a, as a test, as a metric, but also mm-hmm. the kind of source material that they're putting in front of students and what they're not putting in front of students. The SAT right now, right. Uh, it, it assumes students have a certain uh, view of the world. I mean, it really does. I mean, the number of passages where you're supposed to assume that basically every woman was miserable until the 1970s. Yep. Right. right. <laughs> and like, that's not everybody's <laughs> take on the world. Right, exactly. Yeah, kind of along those lines. Um, it's the time of year for bold predictions. So I guess 
another um, another theme we're seeing in the news pop up quite a bit is this move away from standardized tests. And, you know, some top universities in the United States actually saying they're not going to look at the test or going test optional in terms of admissions. So I guess my question to you as the founder of a standardized test, what do you see as one, the drive behind that sort of going away from standardized tests? Is it is it indicative of just the sort of recognition that the SAT and ACT are no longer good metrics? Or is it a move away from tests in general? And if so, uh, what does that say for the future of the CLT? It's a great question. Yeah, the, the history of standardized testing is a long one. I mean, this started really up in, in Maine, you know, Bowdoin College, Bates, you know, 1960s. It's been around oh. for a long time and it slowly uh, spread. Uh, and then what happened is that during COVID, well, it, it really started spreading with the, the, the housing market collapse in 2008. All right. So basically mm-hmm. from the end of World War II mm-hmm. all the way to 2008, you essentially have 60 or so years of growth, more and more students wanting to go to college. Uh, and that's really when colleges become highly selective because you have you know, more applicants than seats available, especially at well-known prestigious mm-hmm. institutions. So the test became very, very, very important. But then in 2008, uh, there was the first really downturn in students applying to college, and the test more and more was seen as a barrier uh, for a lot of colleges saying, we don't need to be selective, we just need students. We need, in some cases, anybody, right? Uh, some colleges uh, have seen you know, seriously declining <laughs> enrollment. But at the same yeah, time, it's a huge problem. The Ivies, University of Chicago, now top, top tier institutions have gone test optional. And that's connected to something a, a little bit different. After George Floyd, uh, Congressman Bowman on the floor uh, of the House uh, said that standardized testing has been a pillar of systematic racism in America. Yeah. If there is one thing colleges don't want to be, it's it's racist, right? And so uh, very quickly, uh, and that was also combined with the fact that tests were hard to come by during early COVID, right? And so colleges kind of had to waive their fees. So very abruptly, we went from 30-ish percent test optional to 92% test optional within about 18 mm. months. It was it was wild how fast it happened. Now, for CLT, it's a win and a loss. In some ways, it puts us on equal footing. We have a great relationship with Duke. Duke says, sure, if kids want to send us their CLT score, we'll take a look. Absolutely, as we would an SAT or mm-hmm. ACT. But we'll also take a tap dancing video or whatever else they might want to send us, right? So we're like, okay, does that yeah. make you a partner or not? It's, it's a little bit more vague. But now we've also seen something new just in the past six or eight months. First, MIT and now Purdue going back to requiring a test. Uh, I can't say them on air, but I I do know of a couple very well-established institutions that will be going back to requiring a test. It'll probably be announced in April or May. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, the way I would describe it, Erica, is that I I think the pendulum has swung as far as it's going to swing against testing. And it's going to swing back a little bit, but not nearly as far as it once was. And I to the same extreme. Yeah, and I actually think that's a good thing. I mean, my, my generation, it yeah. was almost like your SAT score was like branded on your forehead. You know, it was like yes, I'm a 1030 my whole life now, and like it's written. Yeah, here. yeah. it's like no, you're not a 1030. <laughs> that's like your silly score yeah. on one test. So it's one indicator. Yeah, yeah. so so it's kind of like this overreaction of like, okay, is a test score helpful? Yeah, it gives a snapshot into where a student's at in some key academic areas at a given moment in time. But it's not a whole lot more than that either, right? And when, mm-hmm. we, when we we made it even culturally in America, like these SAT and ACT scores are so crucial, I don't think it was good for people. I don't think it was healthy. I don't think it was good psychologically for, for students. So that's where we would love for it to come back is a test score is going to be mm-hmm. one. But what we really launched, though, primarily, uh, not, not because we thought a college – entrance exam was the most awesome thing in the world, but more because we thought that that is where mainstream curriculum, that is the main driver of a lot of curriculum Mm. is what's on the PSAT and SAT. And so we thought, you know what, if you had a competitor to these tests uh, that was requiring students to read from the great tradition, and we have seen that, I mean, some of the best conversations we've had have been actually with Catholic schools where they've said, okay, Jeremy, Mm -hmm. we, we piloted the CLT and now we want to go all in, but we've got to make some major changes to our curriculum. Our students need to be reading more philosophy. They need to be reading more church fathers. And that that yeah. is the very best feedback in the world. And, and with that as well, we're also seeing CLT utilize more and more. Actually, not even more and more. It's almost uh, 70, 
5% utilized not as a college entrance exam. Uh, it's utilized as an internal metric often for homeschool families, uh, but for schools as well to track kind of year over year uh, progress. That's amazing. So you're looking at a college entrance exam as one of the primary, I don't know, big guns, if you will, on the culture war front. Like that, that's what sure. I'm hearing. Yeah. Like who would have thought? It, it sounds you know, strange we wanna... when you think about it, but, but this yeah. experience, Eric, over the past seven years has been kind of just like, I would describe it as grabbing like a piece of string and then you realize there's this massive cobweb that's like attached to it. Because <laughs> it has, the college board Boring. has tentacles everywhere everywhere i mean yeah. it's shocking it is very much immersed and i mean all the way to like driving insurance like the most random mm-hmm. things that you would never expect of like oh, that's connected to sat score and your discounts and everything else so so it, it really is and, and it communicates something you know i went to, to louisiana state undergrad before seminary and as an ed major which is a terrible major never do that if you're listening to this <laughs> <laughs> go to Christianum, go to Hillsdale, major in the classics or, or you know, go to a great books mm-hmm. college, you know, like Thomas Aquinas. Um, but but one of the, the meaningful classes we took was a history of education. And in that, we also talked about that standardized testing. But you're only ever taught to look at standardized testing as an evaluative mm-hmm. tool. But it's it's really mm-hmm. also a pedagogical tool, right? In, in a couple of ways. I mean, right. test, test teach. And they also convey to students what is important and what isn't important. Exactly. And that's why we see the whole teach to the test. Well, if the test is noble and worthy of the human person, you're going to be teaching good stuff. Amen. Yeah. And so. that, that is absolutely our goal. And, and you know, we, we've got an author bank, two thirds of all of the passages on the CLT uh, come from the CLT author hmm. bank. We've got a great uh, board of academic advisors and they can arm wrestle and shout over who is on that author bank and who isn't, but it's anywhere from Boethius, yeah. Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine. We're not a, a quote unquote Catholic company, but we definitely, we would say we lean into the Catholic intellectual tradition mm-hmm. because it is the tradition uh, of the West. It truly is. Yeah. To back it up a little bit. So it seems like the CLT then is sort of part of this wider alternative education movement um, that started well before COVID Right. But since you brought up the COVID, the lockdowns, um, how do you see COVID as accelerating maybe um, parents around the country, their openness to maybe alternative education? So, you know, a lot of people, they grew up in the public schools, did fine for me. I was in a good public school. My kids can go. You know, you set up your life around you're going to send your kids to public school. But then we see post COVID. um this sort of accelerated growth in homeschooling, interest in classical education, these other alternative forms of education. I was hoping, you know, just as someone who's in that space, you could speak to what you see as the root causes of that acceleration. It would probably be good to actually start with kind of a kind of a bit of history. It's funny we we CLT works very closely with uh, the classical Christian school movement, and that that's overwhelmingly we're mm-hmm. talking about Protestant institutions, and they really marked the beginning of this movement to kind of the founding of the Logos School in Idaho and and Doug Wilson and Christ Church out there. Um, I I would really mark it as a Catholic actually with the founding of, of Thomas Aquinas College, uh, and this is mm-hmm. ten years before that in, in 1972. Uh, and essentially, it was four professors. Uh, Laura Burkwest's husband, Mark, was one of them. And there was kind of an yeah. academic project in terms of like what would an authentically Catholic college look like in the modern world. And TAC is what they they come up with, and they've been so true to that to that mission and vision now for for fifty right. years. It's it's very faithful. It's just amazing. Um, but you know, so this movement started off very slowly, and what we had going in the eighties and nineties is just kind of a trickle of a few uh, the homeschooling movement. The first data we have is 1973. It's about 13,000 mm-hmm. then. It's over 5 million today. So just explosive growth on the homeschooling side. Yeah, exponential yeah. growth. Yeah. And then you have the, the classical Christian schools beginning to start in, in the early 80s, but really not until the, the, the late 90s. You have a, a really noticeable number. Uh, and that continues with the, 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 the digital age. And so when we enter into the, the Internet age in the year 2000, it's easier to become aware. Uh, we had Doug Wilson on our podcast not long ago and just hearing him describe mm-hmm. how you're it's so wild. It seems like a different world now to us because we're so used to, to this. But it's like, yeah, I mean, you, it was very hard to know what was happening in other parts of the country in terms of this. Mm-hmm. Ed- alternative education movement. So the internet has connected all of these movements together. And I also think it's one of the unintended things that CLT has done in terms of we've tried to we've tried to galvanize the classical charter world 
We try to galvanize the Catholic world, the homeschool world, the classical Christian school world in order to kind of pick this fight with the college board, yeah. and, you know, and with the education establishments. <laughs> we're like, we need all the friends we yeah. can get because like we need to lock yeah. arms with like minded people here. Uh, yeah. And then and then the movement really kind of exploded with with COVID. Uh, and so you had the Zoom classroom came into everyone's home uh, and parents mm-hmm. weren't impressed. And in some time, in some cases, they were horrified with what their son or daughter was being taught. And so we are we are still experiencing a mass exodus. And it's, it's really wild. I mean, the, the, the media doesn't cover this story hardly at all. Fox News has covered this, but for the most part, the media is not telling this story. We're talking about serious, uh, a serious exodus happening out of New York City public schools, uh, California public schools, especially the ones that have become kind of fanatical ideologically uh, and are pushing things yeah. that five years ago would have seemed wild to almost any American are yeah. now being taught as just, you know, as true. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting too. Um, when I talk to people about classical education or the homeschool movement, um, I hear from, you know, more secular friends, oh, well, that's just kind of like a rich white people's movement. But you actually uh, look at the demographics yeah. <laughs> and the, the largest cohort of homeschooling families right now are actually in the African yes. community, the black communities. Um, and so it, it's it's such an untold story. It is so, that is so and, true. It is so, I can't yeah. help but laugh when I hear that because, I mean, the, pre- the president yeah. of our board, Angel Adams Palm, yeah. Yale graduate, PhD, professor at the University of Virginia, until last year, she homeschooled her own kids in the, in the classical Christian mm-hmm. tradition, you know, and she's she's not mm-hmm. alone uh, in doing this. And so it, it again, it's, it's a story that the mainstream media won't tell that story, but it's 16 yeah. percent right now. Black families are homeschooling and they mm-hmm. outperform their public school peers on reading comprehension tests by over 40 percent. Think about that. Over 40 percent is mind boggling. Yeah. And, and, you know, right. I, I spent almost 10 years in the public school arena and you hear a lot about the achievement gap. Well, that, that is the number one achievement gap that I've ever heard. The difference between black mm-hmm. homeschool kids and black public school students. Right. And um, I mean, right. it, it, it really is. So I think we are living through right now the most um, the, 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 the most rapid change disruption uh, of American education, I think, in our history. Right. And in a good way. In a great way, I think. Absolutely. We're we're going with some good news here. Um, Well, that was, this has been so encouraging and I would encourage all of our listeners to check out the CLT at cltexam.com. And even if you don't have um, school age children, even if this is not your demographic right now, I think um, this conversation has totally convinced me that this is a movement, not just a test. And it's very important that we all be aware of the good work being done by everyone at CLT. Jeremy, thank you so much. Erica, what what an honor uh, to be on the show. Love to come back in the future. And thanks for all the good work uh, that you're doing. All right, back from the interview now. And we're going to move into Answer the Inbox here. So we had someone reach out. We've actually been talking a lot about school of choice. School of choice has kind of become this buzzword. It's gotten a lot of momentum across the country in legislatures and state-level politics. People listening to this, I would venture to say, this is going to be a little bit of a hot take. There's probably a lot of homeschoolers, homeschooling families in this audience. I don't want to speak for everyone. Hey, guys. I was, I was homeschooled for a little while. Erica, did homeschooling family. I Josh homeschool. uh, does not. He's one of the evil, evil public well, schools. What <laughs> happens is I offered to have my kids uh, schooled at home, but uh, the teacher quit. So <laughs> No, this is no uh, no slight on anyone for their educational decisions. You, the parents, are the primary educators of your children. Absolutely. And whatever choice you make, as long as it's best for, the, for your children and your situation is right. And so that actually kind of goes into this question. So someone brought up to me, why should they care about uh, school of choice and school of choice politics when they are just going to homeschool anyway, right? So mm. I know this a lot in my circles, people are like, I'm never going to send my kid to a Do they live school. on an island in the South Pacific or what? I guess I don't understand that. Like, no, they live Why in would I care about a policy Indiana. that would affect 90% of the students in the country? Gee, I don't know. I <laughs> so mean, maybe Josh, it, it sounds like you, I mean, Josh, it sounds like you have some strong thoughts. Would you like to answer hmm. this uh, question? I mean, come on. It's like, you know, I'm not saying that we have to have prayer in all the public schools, but like that question of whether or not it would be a, a permissible to, let's say, study the Bible in public school. That's a question that everyone should be able to weigh in on, right? 
And, it, you know, the, the left thinks of these schools are ours and we get to dictate everything. And mm -hmm. the only thing that's, you know, we, the only thing that's forbidden is any hint of religion at all. Um, no, I would want, I mean, you want to have, I mean, if homeschooling is the option for your family, fantastic. But you still want the best schools in your country. You want your neighborhood yeah. and your town to have the best schools possible. And frankly, having a little competition and empowering parents to make that choice, to send their kids to the school they want to, that's awesome. It's a matter of justice. Catholics shouldn't be taxed twice in property mm -hmm. taxes and then having to pay tuition. It's like, why can't I direct my tax dollars to the education of my choice? It's a matter of justice, for, frankly. Absolutely. And there's a lot of parents, a lot of families that, you know, are deciding should they homeschool or should they not? And there's some families like, I wish I could, but I can't mm -hmm. because of, you know, their family situation, their job situation, whatever. So we want to make sure that as many schools as uh, parents as possible can make that choice for their kids. And we're seeing a revolution going on. It took a long, long time. I mean, like, you know, when I was, you know, 20 years ago, we had like a few pilot programs like Milwaukee had some school choice and then yeah, like isolated cities. a tiny little thing. And then all of a sudden it just, it built and it built and it built. And in Florida now, universal school choice, Utah, universal school choice, Iowa just passed it. And we're seeing this open up Indiana school choice. So we're seeing these states now that have universal school choice and a lot of other states who are considering it as well. And, and, you know, elections come and go, and we, you've got to try as best as you can to fight for good policy. Mm -hmm. And the left likes to talk about systemic change. It kind of, and you hear that, and it kind of might make you want to go crazy. But school choice is a, is a matter of systemic change for the better. Because, the, frankly, here's a funny thing. In the, 20, um, the 2018 election in Florida for governor, it was super close. Uh, the Democrat candidate lost to Ron DeSantis, who was not the governor at the time. I mean, there's an open race. He lost it by a whisker. Andrew mm -hmm. And the Wall Street Journal had figured out that the reason why Ron DeSantis was able to put it over the top was that he was able to appeal to a lot of uh, black moms and, and Hispanic moms who were afraid if they voted for a Democrat for governor, they would lose their school choice. Mm -hmm. And so it was it was something like, wait, this made now this is personal, mm -hmm. and and that made the difference. And then he ends up getting reelected right. in a monster landslide. And but school choice is, an, is a winner for yeah. Republican politicians if they want to get smart. Right, and it appeals to parents of uh, to parents who are voting of all different, a whole spectrum of political um, persuasions because they once their kid has tasted, once they've tasted that freedom, they want to keep having that freedom to send their kid where they, where they desire, where's best for their child. And we're seeing in Arizona right now, a year ago, uh, governor, then governor Doug Ducey signing into law, one of the most, you know, open, uh, voucher policies, it applied to 1.2 million Arizonan school children getting, uh, access to these universal vouchers. And now we're seeing Elections have consequences. Democratic governor Katie Hobbs in there, and she has vowed to undo that. So she's now talking about taking away. And I mean, if she's successful and she takes away those checks from those parents, I am just I mean, I'm waiting for the fallout there because it doesn't matter if you liked Carrie Lake or not. You if Katie Hobbs takes away that money, she's going to she's going to wake the mama bears. And that's yeah. dangerous politicking there. I think a couple of important things too. So tax money is your money. Right. It belongs to you. You are to the one the that parents. pay it. You it's should have money. a say right. as to how it's It's not spent. the government's money. Right. Nope. They don't own it. Public schools well, don't own it. Well, and even if you couldn't afford it, actually, here's the thing. Even if it wasn't your money, and it's a community, this is such a joke. Like any other program, whether it's like Medicare, food housing, uh, you know, mm -hmm. food stamps, all that kind of stuff. It's not, the government doesn't say, oh, I'm sorry, you're, you're hungry. Uh, you want to feed your children, you want government assistance to feed your children, you have to go to this this grocery store that's owned by the government. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you starve. That like, has rotten fruit, what? food. Like, are you kidding me? It's I like, mean, right. Yeah. It's, it's like, wait a minute. Why can't, why can't we just say, we want to make sure people don't starve. We'll give them the money to mm -hmm. go to whatever store they want to. I mean, if you want to say they can't buy caviar, fine, I get it. But like, you're, you're saying they have to go to a store owned by, and they have to buy government. I mean, give me a break. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's ludicrous. 
They don't totally. say that for when it comes to government funding for education. You can get a government grant or loan and go to Notre Dame, which is a private school and it's religious, like at least right. a little bit. Um, <laughs> so I don't understand this. Like, what? It's only because the, the teachers' unions want the monopoly. Yeah. They want the power. Mm -hmm. They care more about their own power than they care about poor kids They've said in it. Washington, D.C. And we know that. It's, They've it's, actually said it's, it. It's right. evil. Right. Yeah. And just to, to draw to the um, our viewers' attention and our listeners' attention, we have a, a phenomenal article posted on The Loop um, in the news feed. And it's just showing how these very politicians who are saying what Josh just said, that you know, vouchers and for profit have no place in the state that um, we don't support school vouchers. These are the same people who are sending their children to top elite college preparatory programs or who attended them themselves. And I would just encourage you to go check out that article. I will drop it. Um, it's and a really fun game. Yeah. If it, you ever want to, it's a if fun you ever want to go after people <laughs> that are against school of choice, guess where they sent their kids, guess where they went to schools. It was not oh. public schools. And they're not planning on sending their kids to public schools anytime soon. So yep. if you want to dunk on someone instantly on Twitter, this guy, Corey DeAngelis, he's kind of a champion of school of choice, <laughs> does it all the time. And no one has a good comeback for it. It's mm -hmm. your kids, you're sending your kids to a private school. You went to a private school. It's like, mm -hmm. what are we mm -hmm. doing here? Why do you want to lock poor kids in bad schools? Like yep. that's the bottom line. It's almost like it's about power. Imagine mm -hmm. that. Crazy. Oh, wait. Imagine yeah. that. So my, my uh, favorite quote was Pete Buttigieg, just um, just for anyone. He, go go check out the article. Yeah, he's there. married too. Thanks, uh, thanks, Father James Martin for pointing. Supposedly, out. Heard, uh, he's married according to, to Father James Martin. So really uh, so I before we move on here, I wanted to give a, a quick uplift here, a quick shout out. Uh, so onto the Super Bowl goes a very successful, very accurate kicker. Plays for the Kansas City Chiefs. His name is Harrison Butker. And this might be common knowledge to some people, but if not, I thought this was kind of a cool story to share. He actually is a very outspoken, proud Catholic. And in an industry that really thrives on ego and money and being braggadocious, he's a very <laughs> humble but very successful. I mean, if anyone watched the game, Kansas City against the Bengals hit a clutch field goal to send them to the Super Bowl. I mean, clutch. A really heartbreaking game for any Cincy fans out there. I feel bad for you guys. We have some internal, but not too much. To yeah, not too much because they were kind of getting a little cocky. So, and it was a great game. It was a great game. So Harrison, so Harrison actually, uh, he actually grew up Catholic and then faded away from the faith in his teens. I mean, a story I think we've we've all heard a few times. Goes to college, plays kicker for Georgia Tech, and he had a teammate that was Catholic, and actually uh, encouraged him to get more into his faith, answered a lot of his questions, was very, like lived a very Catholic life. And Harrison himself really, uh, he quotes that the sacrament of confession actually brought him back to the faith. It made him feel lighter. It made him feel like his authentic self. Uh, like I'm sure a lot of people will probably have that feeling when they leave confession. I know I do. And so actually joins the Knights of Columbus. He's actually a current Knight of Columbus. Uh, he then went on to the NFL. And when he was in the NFL, uh, he is still very outspoken Catholic and he, uh, actually really fell in love with the Latin mass said that it was kind of a transcendental experience for him. Uh, and he actually is an altar server at the Latin mass. And I'll throw up a picture on the YouTube, kind of a cool side by side of him kicking a field goal in the NFL and him serving a high Latin mass. Uh, so really just inspirational guy. And I, I just want to share this quote and it really stuck out to me. Uh, and I hope it resonates with you. So when asked the question what his main passion in life is, you would probably expect, you know, maybe win another Super Bowl. He's already won one. Uh, but no, his answer was, number one, my Catholic faith. I'm trying to spread my faith the best that I can. I'm doing my best to use the platform God's given me to evangelize, to bring beauty and truth to others around me, to help expose them to the truths of the Catholic Church. And Harrison currently has a beautiful son and a lovely wife. Uh, and so... I, for one, am, am probably going to root for them in the playoffs. I think Philly's pretty good. Uh, but, I mean, if it comes down to a field goal, well, I know who, I, who I'm picking. The thing so. that we can take away from this, too, though, is, like, that teammate who honestly just cared about Harrison mm -hmm. as a person. And the percentage of athletes in college that go on to have a, a career in the NFL that, and one that's successful is mm -hmm. actually rather Super remote. Super small. Mm -hmm. And so he's doing it because he's like, I found peace. Maybe this would be helpful to you, Harrison. And 
isn't that great? Like now Harrison's fire is lit because of this other guy. So yeah. you you know we we should take from that. You never know. Do you have a guess like, where the other guy ended God, up? Yeah, you never know what God might do with well, what do you, you can. Do you know he, what he you is offer to the Lord? He, his current profession. Do you have any guesses? Priest. Who the teammate was? Yeah, he joined the seminary. Yeah, <laughs> called it. There you go. <laughs> yeah, seriously, what a cool story. But That's yeah, just, really amazing. Uh, that definitely brought a smile on my face. I felt really bad for Cincinnati, though. They had the one guy who committed the penalty <laughs> at the end of the game, and man, they shoved cameras in his face. Like, yeah. why do we got to kick well, this it's, guy? I was like, down? leave him alone. Come on. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. Cincinnati, you got you got a tough component uh, opponent in in the refs, and then also the you know the Chiefs. <laughs> so they had a, it was like they're fighting two teams. Yeah, I saw Mahomes did a jersey swap with a ref at the end of the game. So you know, game respect <laughs> yeah, game on that on. one. But uh, yeah, congrats to Kansas City. Congrats to Harrison. Congrats. Hope you wish you the best, man. Uh, good luck in the Super Bowl. So we move on now into the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, Josh, we got you up first. What do you have this week? Well, I just thought this was kind of cute. I mean, like, you know, they get these, you know, trends in fat, uh, home design and all this kind of stuff. My wife, you know, I, I joke that if she ever bought a, a, if there was a TV for sale that only had HGTV on it, she would buy it. She loves that kind of stuff. <laughs> And, and, you know, she, uh, I find it absolutely, I'm bored to tears with it, you know, and, but, you know, she, and then she jokes with me because, you know, my mom likes to talk about things being feng shui or, and I, I still don't know what that means, feng shui. Feng shui. but that so she cute. tells me about all these like little trends. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of interesting. I want to research this guy. I got, pro- you know, prosecuted by the FBI, but go ahead and tell me about Marie Kondo or whatever this stuff is. And, you know, everything being neat and tidy. And it's like, I know with six kids in my house, nothing is tidy. But uh, she's called the queen of clean, Marie Kondo. And she, you know, she's big on tidying up things. And uh, I think a lot of people in our culture just love that because they, you know, there's a lot of things that you don't control in life. And so the idea that you can keep your home, your castle, very pristine and very clean and orderly. It gives people that sense of control, I Wait, guess. Are you I Jordan? Mean, did Jordan B. Peterson just join the podcast here? What's going on? Hey. Bed in the morning? Well, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm a rock star too. So anyway, <laughs> what happens, she finally admits after the birth of her third child that yeah. she's kind of eased up on herself when it comes to tidying. And so it's like, oh, well, this is great. You know, like maybe uh, maybe other people can be less psycho about this, you know, because I've gotten the judgy eyes from people to come into my mm. house. And they wonder if I'm filming something <laughs> uh, special for TLC, you know, hoarding hoarders. or something like that. Oh, hoarders. Hoarders. Yeah. The opposite. Yeah, no, well, I just have I, I just got have a little kids. poster in my house that says, you know, Danielle Bean 316. Kids live here. That's my little <laughs> slogan. She always said. You know, just, I mean, it's like, there's that Venn diagram. It's like, you know, an, a clean house, ha- happy kids, and sanity. It's like, That's pick true. two of these three. They don't overlap, so. It's you true. Know, keep yeah. it a stride. It was I think funny it's nice too. she's a little bit nor- normal. Yeah, like, she's relaxed a little bit. It's funny, because I discovered uh, Marie Kondo. Is that how you say her name? I discovered her after sure. the birth of my third child. So I, I met her at the point that I was, that she is now, and she's relaxing. And I remember just watching... Like on YouTube um, or Netflix, obsessively her videos about how to fold laundry and just feeling like uh, this is unreal. And uh, she has no kids, and so to see it now come full circle, um, I now have six. She has three, and I'm thinking uh, she's found other things. Yeah, she's found other things that spark joy besides just a perfect teapot sitting on a. So what we're hearing from this now is that Erica's house is cleaner than Maria. Yeah, it is. Well, now, because now my kids are old enough to clean the house. No, it's not. It is not. Put them to work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In fact, like, yeah, I'm not going to turn the camera around. Let's just put it that way. Erica, what you got this week? All right. Mine's going to go a little bit darker here and I'm going to return to our Jane's Revenge uh, coverage as it were. So Rolling Stone, which I don't read regularly, I'll admit it, but uh, Stephen Harriet. It's still around. It is, I mean, apparently. Stephen Harriet, one of our colleagues, he shot this article over to me and it's like, you got to see this. So Rolling Stone, um, they, <laughs> they are covering, finally, they're actually paying attention to uh, some of the violence against uh, pregnancy resource centers, but they're paying attention to it in order to explain to you that it's really not that big a deal. We're going to downplay it. 
<laughs> and uh, they get this woman, the former deputy chief of special litigation from the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, to explain the FACE Act. And so I'm reading like, well, this is great. Like she's the one prosecuting it. So she starts coming, she starts coming out with uh, lines like, oh, it's really a content neutral law. It doesn't take your viewpoint into consideration, she says. And she prosecuted FACE Act violations during her 15-year tenure. Uh, and we know from our research that she did not prosecute one single FACE Act violation um, against people threatening pregnancy care centers or Catholic churches. Mm. And she said, she said, you know, I'm only aware of one case in which the FACE Act was used against a pregnancy center. Um, so apparently she hasn't been reading the news. Uh, there were 26 last year. Uh, but that's, mm. she goes, that's not for a lack of interest on the prosecutor's part. Oh, no. Any case that we found that we thought we could prove violated the FACE Act, we would absolutely try to bring that case without question, regardless of who the people were, whether it was an abortion clinic or a pregnancy center or a place of worship. So this is just her way of saying there really are no instances of violence against PRCs or pro-lifers or Catholics or Christians. There are none because if there had been, I would have prosecuted them, right? Mm. So it's just this yeah. snaky little way. And after doing all the research on the FACE Act to read this article and have her be like, no, I'm not really aware of any instances. Do you send her the Catholic oh, vote tracker? please. Or maybe shoot her a DM or something. Yeah, maybe we should tag her on this, actually. We'll we'll clip um, it and we'll uh, we'll tag her on 300? this. 300? Unbelievable. What are, we, what are we at? Over 300 right now? Combined like PRCs yeah. and Catholic churches, over 300 since May 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly enough, when we dropped our Twitter thread, where we did all 200 churches that have been attacked since uh, the Dobbs leak, um, we had more people emailing us in and sending us more pictures saying, you missed this one. You missed this one. You missed that one. I mean, unbelievable. Like we're well over that number now from the last year. So for her to be like, Hey, it's a neutral act. We're so neutral in the DOJ. If, if we're not prosecuting something, it's because there's (laughs) nothing to prosecute, nothing to see here. Like, wake up. Twilight I'm just excited zone. that they're still Rolling Stone. I mean, it's like the safest, <laughs> Josh, Josh is lamest. like, dude, they're still Rolling Stone. This I can't is get amazing. Over this. I, well, like, God bless them. We know them. what like, you'll be reading finally tonight. There's, yeah. <laughs> finally, there's something for liberal boomers to celebrate. Like, oh, gosh, I was so worried it died out, like, in 2003. Well, but it, they, you're welcome. Not, they still print it, apparently, and they still have a website, even. Yep. This is great. Like, oh, gosh. This is the best news I've heard since you, NPR is still on there. For the those air. of you listening and you can't see him, Josh, when I was like Rolling Stone magazine, Josh like gets on his computer and he's like, oh, look, it's still there. I can get on the website. Yeah, we know what you're going to be uh, reading. Unbelievable. Right? Yeah. yeah. I um, mean, uh, yeah. wouldn't recommend. I thought they died with Kurt Cobain, but I guess not. All right. So Josh uh, shamelessly stole my Twilight Zone, but fortunately I stay strapped with Twilight Zones. Uh, I usually have like three or four every week. You're prepped. You're prepped. So... Sure. Uh, we can do this. This one really spoke to me on a spiritual level. So sometimes, so I like doing these crosswords. I do crosswords in the morning. Uh, it really <laughs> no. keeps my mind sharp. Okay, so I I really appreciate a good acronym, and no one is better at this than politicians because they come oh, up man. with names for acts or bills face that act. serve their purposes. Face act, whatever. So I mean, they're just kings at this. So what you know, tip my hat. Game respect game. So uh, Republican Josh Hawley, uh, all around good dude, uh, very uh, strong with us in the pro-life issue. But he decided to maybe go off on something different here. And he introduced the Pelosi Act. (laughs) And for anyone wondering what Pelosi stands for, because it is a a name, uh, it's called Preventing Elected Leaders from Owning Securities and Investments Act. And for any of you wondering, it's because the Pelosi family has made quite (laughs) a bit of money uh, selling stocks, trading stocks, um, maybe because they have a little bit more access than the average day trader uh, because Nancy Pelosi has well was the Speaker of the House for a very long time. And she has people actually tracking every trade she makes because people then make similar trades knowing that she's probably <laughs> going to make money on it. She just dumped a, a ton yeah, of she's got inside information. Mm-hmm. She has inside information. And so Pretty it clear. really is unbelievable that we still as a country allow people with insider information to make millions and millions though? of dollars on this. So. so we don't allow our presidents to do this. Presidents have to put their uh, money into a private trust while they're in office, right? But because... 
because we say, oh, that doesn't sound right. And and the Congress is like, yeah, we'll stop that. <laughs> and people are like, yeah, but so um, what about you, bro? And they're like, what? what? Yeah, what? rules for the enough Let's for me. Let's take care of this first. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let me, let know, me dump a few years trades. years later. Yeah, yeah. So, that was pretty sweet, so though. So shameless. Shout out yeah, to I Josh Holly. I think we're ready. Funny. You know, unfortunately, I doubt that this is going to get passed because congressmen right. like their inside information and they like to make money. But mm. uh, for everyone else... Um, you think it could get I, passed? How about this? This bill, there's no way they both, there's no way that this bill would get passed because mm -hmm. they're not going to pass a bill that's named in such a way that's like a sticking <laughs> awesome, a finger it in the eye perfect. of Pelosi. So, awesome. No, that won't happen. However, I do think there could be a bill that comes forward that does restrict uh, congressmen and women and senators from, I do think that's possible. It, it would get some bipartisan support. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a reform bill. I could see it happening. Okay. I hope so. Cause I'm tired. I mean, I'm tired of it. So I, you know, I mm -hmm. am not a very good trader. So I just stick my money <laughs> in my 401k. I just uh, do what Nancy Pelosi's doing. True. Actually. Yes. I should have been doing it a long time ago. Many people are, and they've done pretty well. So, uh, all right. Pelosi stock fund. Pelosi stock fund. So go check out Pelosi's trades. If you want to get rich, uh, that is not a serious advice. I don't want to be held accountable for that. Weird that was joke. a joke. Uh, totally joke. Total joke. Yeah. Total joke. Yep. Uh, but yeah, that's it for this week's Loopcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, I've really been enjoying talking to people. I personally answer them. It is in the inbox, loopcast at catholicboat.org. Uh, and I always you follow You got to say that slower, people. I mean, come on. You you're run so fast. Loopcast at catholicboat.org. Send us an email. Okay. That was nice. I'm not even, even going to cut that. Yeah, I'm keeping that, that in. You should that just keep gold. that. Of course. I'm going to email you now. Why would you cut Thanks, me? Josh. You don't need to edit me. I don't need to. I never edit you. That's you don't crazy. edit the it's always one take. I call him one take Josh. Um, so one take Josh, Erica and Tom, we're signing off here. If you really want to help us out, please leave us a review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts. You can do it on Google Podcasts. We're on YouTube now. Shout us out in the comments. Share us with a friend. Uh, these are the kind of things that help keep us going here. So that's all we have for this week. Go keep the faith. Be happy warriors. Maybe that'll stick. I don't know. See you on the next one. <laughs> You'll get there. Yeah. <laughs>